0: I think long and hard about easter all year really i had considered developing a message that emphasized the fact that jesus folded up the grave cloths for all of you neat freaks in the house i had considered a number of things and i came back to this what i tend to do some kind of variation every easter for the last several years and just talk about the resurrection in terms of its reality. It can mean a lot of things for something to be real. You can say, well, something's real to me, so it's real enough. You can say, well, something's really nice, so it's real in the sense that it helps me in some way. That's not really what I'm talking about here this morning. I want to offer up some key ideas with regard to the historic reality of the resurrection did jesus really rise from the dead because you see you can have a whole lot of things and call it christian but if you don't have the resurrection of the dead in jesus christ well you don't really have the historic christian faith you can have nice gatherings you can have pretty songs you can have any number of things that can kind of intimate christianity but you don't have christ if you don't have him rising from the dead. Chuck Colson once commented, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified, they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. We're gonna emphasize that in a moment. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned and put in prison. They would not have endured if it wasn't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. So Chuck Colson says, you're going to tell me that 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. I agree. I am so convinced that Jesus actually really rose from the dead bodily that I've staked my whole life on it everything I do professionally and personally the way I lead my family and the things we do as a family are all anchored in this one reality in fact I'll be perfectly frank over the years in pastoral ministry this is what's kept me in the game when things got difficult who do you know how many of you know sometimes church folk can be a little difficult? Don't be don't be doing like one woman in a church. I said something similar one Sunday and she does this. <laughs> be doing that back in the choir like I don't because I can't see. <clears throat> this is it. I don't know how many times I've said to my wife over the years, man, this thing is so stressful that's happening, but you know what? He really rose from the dead. I I I I I'm convinced and I'm going to stand on that truth. But why stand on that truth? Amen. (laughs) So we're going to hit that and then conclude with some practical applications of what it means to be raised in Christ if indeed he is raised from the dead. I'm convinced we have good reason to believe in the resurrection, even if only on an intellectual level. I was blessed and privileged to have as my apologetics professor in undergraduate and graduate studies at Liberty University, Dr. Gary Habermas, who is among the most well-known Christian apologists and has argued perhaps best for the reliability of the resurrection. I'm going to present to you his five points that he calls The minimal facts argument think of joe friday just the facts ma'am no speculation what are the facts in fact these are the principles or the ideas around the real the reality of the resurrection that even unbelieving and liberal scholars accept all of these five ideas are things that are accepted by the vast majority of the academic community even those who are unbelieving they just come up with various ways to deal with them to try to avoid belief Point number one, Jesus died by crucifixion. Listen, I I want to impress upon you the reality that Jesus really died on that cross, okay? The cross was not something easy to walk away from. In fact, it was invented way before the Romans, and the whole notion of this thing was, why they used it, is because it was such a cruel instrument of death. So as to say, hey, don't don't mess with Rome, this is what will happened to you. And you may recall in the Gospels that Jesus, in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, doesn't have his legs broken. They're coming to break his legs and they say, wait a second, don't break his legs. He's already dead and then he had his side pierced with a spear and out came water and blood. It, it, it proved that he was really dead and he had no response to the spear entering into his side, pressing into the outer layer of his heart. He was really dead. Jesus died on a cross, and this is accepted even by the unbelieving world, those serious scholars looking at the Old Testament and New Testament as literature and looking at the, histor- the historic aspects of the faith. In fact, it's so much accepted that liberal scholars over the years have tried to come up with various ways to deal with it. Here's one way they came up with. It came out in the 1800s. It was called the swoon theory. Here was the idea. Jesus didn't die on the cross. He swooned or fainted. He passed out. And then when they took his body off the cross, they laid him in the tomb in the cold dampness of it, and that revived him. He was beaten nearly to death. He hung on the tree. He bled. He had a crown of thorns pushed down on his head. Somehow, He made it into the tomb and he just was like refreshed by the cool dampness of the stone slab upon which he was laid uh, and the cool damp air again these facts are so well attested to and accepted historically that people have had to come up with brilliant scholars have had to come up with various ways to address the reality of the death and resurrection of jesus as such well here's the problem with anything like the swoon theory even if it's right it's wrong let's say he somehow was revived and he stood up miraculously and then he pushed a more than a ton of stone out of the way in his condition he was on a cross just a day and a half before and he hasn't eaten or had anything to drink so he pushes the stone out of the way then he he battles two roman centurions good luck with that and then he shows up to the upper room he tells the disciples hey guys I, r- I woke up from the dead. Even if this theory is right, it's dead wrong because they wouldn't have hailed him as a risen king. They would have said, get Luke over here. Get a doctor. Listen, I want to impress upon you this reality. Exactly. This reality, Jesus really died on the cross. Secondly, Jesus' disciples, his disciples believed that he had risen and had appeared to them. They genuinely believed it. In an effort to dismiss this, there have been a number of theories put forth over the years, like the hallucination theory, which suggested the disciples were so beside themselves with grief that they had one mass hallucination where they all saw Jesus risen from the dead. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because some of you grew up in the 60s okay is that how hallucination works please don't raise your hands listen that's not how hallucination works the notion of 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 all of them having the exact same hallucination brought about by their grief not everyone even deals with grief the same way you might have one person who who would get into such a grief-induced state so as to make that a possibility but not a dozen or it would have been 11 in that moment? No, they really believed it. J. Warner Wallace has defined three motivating factors that are missing from that kind of conspiracy. Because the thing the Jews said right away was, oh, the disciples stole the body. Do you see, even lending credence to the fact that the body wasn't in the tomb, they knew it wasn't in the tomb. The disciples stole the body. They're going to perpetrate some kind of a scam, some kind of a religious con. This would have been like on the level of the original, you know, send me $1,000 late night television, and I'll send you a prayer cloth that I anointed with oil. Well, the guy on late night television has strong financial motivation to do so. As Wallace points out, the disciples did not. Someone would do that out of a desire for power, greed, or possibly lust. Well, the disciples were mistreated by the world around them and gained no power. They weren't greedy. They were always telling people to sell all their possessions and give it to the poor. And they weren't lustful. They believed rather strictly that sex should only occur inside of a marriage. They believed it so strongly. Listen to this. Here's a few examples of how the disciples, these apostles, were willing to be treated in order to keep the lie going, as it were, for more than 40 years. The apostle Paul suffered numerous instances of persecution, even once being thrown off a cliff and left for dead. James is even mentioned in the Bible in Acts twelve two was put to death by the sword at the order of King Herod. Peter, church tradition tells us, was crucified upside down in Rome in fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy concerning his future martyrdom in John chapter 21. Matthew suffered martyrdom in Ethiopia, killed by a sword. John faced martyrdom when he was boiled in a huge basin of boiling oil. Not much power, not much reason to keep the lie going. Somehow he survived it and then he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. James, the brother of Jesus, was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was thrown from the southeast pinnacle of the temple over 100 feet down. Good historical record to corroborate that because he refused to deny faith in Jesus. When they discovered he somehow survived the 100-foot fall, his enemies beat James to death with a club. Not much reason to keep the lie going. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, was a missionary to Asia. He witnessed in present-day Turkey and was martyred for his teaching in Armenia, being flayed to death by a whip. I remember when I was a little kid, my dad left when I was very young. And when I was little, I became prone to lying. I was embarrassed by my dad having abandoned his family, and I was all the time lying when I was real little. I would make up the most outrageous lies. I didn't want people to think my dad a a, a bad man. I once told a second cousin that my dad couldn't be there at Easter because he was busy rescuing people from the top of volcanoes. <laughs> it's okay, you could laugh, it's ridiculous. He couldn't be there because he was busy rescuing people from volcanoes. He had special boots. He had once rescued me from a similar volcano. And he might be there next year when he was able to come back. But he had important work to do. You know, Pinocchio, the nose grows. Why? Because the more you tell a lie, the more obvious it becomes like the nose on your face. And I was found out for my lies, and I quickly recanted at the threat of beating from one of my family members who was older and unappreciative of my lies. There was no reason to keep the lie going if it was a lie. There was no benefit to the apostles. Even secular scholars agree that those apostles believed they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. And there's no valid explanation to explain away the depth of their conviction. Not only that, it continued on in the early church. The church was persecuted, and this is Dr. Habermas's third point in his Minimal Facts argument. They were even persecuted by Saul, who met Jesus face to face and then became Paul and wrote about a third of the New Testament. Paul was an ardent persecutor of the church. He claimed an encounter with the risen Lord and had a dramatic change in two things, belief and behavior, upon which or in which he persisted all the way to a martyr's death. Think about that for a moment. That's the power of personal testimony, do you see? Someone is living a life apart from Christ and going a completely other way. In his case, he was even Persecuting the church. He met the resurrected Savior and what happened? He immediately, instantly had a, a a deep impact on his beliefs and on his behavior. And he persisted in them. You see, somebody might, you know, occasionally you'll hear of someone who, oh, they 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 caught Jesus, right? They're living a certain way. Oh, they found Jesus. They got they got they got the Jesus bug, I heard somebody say one time. Don't worry, it'll it'll wear off. It's only about a usually a two or three month bug. And uh, so 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 the bug will wear off. Well, with Paul, he persisted in it. In other words, he had really seen the resurrected Savior. Otherwise, he would not have persisted. And that's the power of personal testimony. Fourth, and I think for me, this has got to be the most powerful witness to the reality of the resurrection as a historically accurate account of the events. The skeptic James, the brother of Jesus, was changed after the resurrection. Anybody have siblings? You can raise your hand on this one, right? Anybody have siblings? Well, guess what? You ain't going to convince me that my little brother is the risen Lord. That ain't happening. He's a good dude, but you're not going to convince me that he's, he was he, that he is God incarnate. And I suspect James, the brother of Jesus, felt just the same way. And then after the resurrection, this James, who had been largely skeptical of his brother's claims, yeah, Jesus, okay, yeah, let's go walk on some water. Sure. You're going to sink, man. Mama told you not to, do, right? I mean, this is, these are real people. This stuff, these are real people in a real time, in a real place. And it's easy to forget that. We venerate the, the, the stories of the Bible so much we forget their historic accounts of real people's lives. And James saw his brother raised from the dead. And then all that stuff he heard from Mary, and all that stuff he, he heard about the miraculous, I'm sure he was like, yeah, whatever, sure. You. So, so the Holy Spirit, that's why you, you got pregnant before you were married? Sure, Ma. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and, now, and now here is his brother that he grew up with, you know? He, he's resurrected. And now James, James goes on to become one of the most important apostles spreading the gospel. And lastly, the tomb was empty. The Jews claimed the disciples had stolen the body. The Jews, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, these people who had him crucified, who had him put to death because he was dangerous for their political and their religious power, they shot themselves in the foot, historically speaking. They insisted the tomb was empty, unwittingly giving us one of the best, most reliable evidences that history has ever provided to tell us that Jesus rose from the dead. They said the disciples stole the body. Well, I, I don't know how you can argue that the disciples would have stolen the body and continued in their lie. In the face of boiling oil? I think I would have changed my story. So there's some of the reasons Dr. Habermas, I think, there's many more. Dr. Habermas's minimal facts argument, I think, is the strongest, because even secular scholars embrace these ideas or accept them as historical. Here's one more important thought, historically speaking. There were a lot of embarrassing details that were kept in the Gospels. Have you ever had someone question you about something? Maybe when you are a kid, maybe not, and they're like, how did this break? How did that happen? Well, we're going to tend to tell those stories of a group dynamic in ways that leave out embarrassing details about ourselves. We're gonna to tend to tell a story and we're gonna leave out a whole part of it if part of what happened was we did something dumb, wrong, or something illegal or something we weren't supposed to do. We're gonna leave that out. But the Gospels don't. The fact that women were the first witnesses that a member of the Sanhedrin, the same Sanhedrin that had executed Jesus, had to give Jesus a proper burial, and that the disciples were fearful and fled all serve as embarrassing factors that corroborate the reality of the resurrection. In those days, the fact that women were the one that discovered the tomb was empty would have been of tremendous embarrassment to them. They're supposed to be men, courage. Peter's accounts of cowardly action on the eve of the crucifixion, they're in the gospel. Read the gospel of John. You'll notice that John never calls himself John. What does he call himself? the disciple whom Jesus loved that's what he does because he's writing the book right so you can tell that's him and what does he talk about the resurrection he says the the disciples whom Jesus loved and Peter were running to the tomb the disciple whom Jesus loved outran Peter read it it's in there these kind of like human details they serve as a way to kind of have a ring of truth that helps us to understand that they were really written. But none of that's going to mean much if you're a skeptic. None of that's going to mean much if you haven't discovered the reality of God's love in you through Jesus Christ by faith alone. None of that usually serves to convince anyone, rather to strengthen the faith of those who have encountered the risen Lord. I want to leave you with three thoughts for what this means for us personally and practically, and then I'm done. Number one, it means that you and I are a part of the body of Christ. If Jesus is really raised, then you and I are a part of of the body of Christ. And not only that, that means that when the body of Christ gathers, this is a place for everyone. I'm a follower of Jesus who is fully convinced of the reality of the resurrection. That means I belong right here i belong in the body and to the body and i'm a part of the body and i want to suggest to you today that we're better when we're together the covenant community is the shelter from the storms of life in this fallen pain-riddled sin-stricken world and somebody's like well i don't always want to be here the preacher talks too long whatever find another preacher in another church i don't mean like for this church I'm perfectly content right here. (laughs) You say, well, I'm not fully convinced. Neither was James. Saul certainly wasn't convinced. Thomas doubted. Why do I offer apologetic sermons? That's what this is, reasons to defend the faith. Because only a fool has no doubts. But the reality of the resurrection is such that when you see jesus risen when we experiencing when we experience him in the context of covenant community when that happens it strengthens our faith and this is the place to bring your questions and this is the place to bring your doubts and that altar is the place to bring not only our sacrifices but our imperfect broken hearts and our faith which is riddled with imperfection so number one it means that you and i are a part of the body of christ if we would but affirm that by faith, even imperfect faith, because God is the giver of only that perfect faith. And number two, it means that my sense of self-worth is not dependent on the opinions and attitudes of others. If Jesus is risen from the dead and I am a part of the body of Christ by faith, then that means the only opinion that matters of me is that which God has of me. I am a child of God. My worth is was defined at the cross, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago. This is God in Christ telling us how much he loves us, arms wide open, hands wide open. This is the expression of my love for you. Come and be forgiven. My worth was defined at the cross, and my hope lives in an empty tomb. And lastly, it means I have work to do. If we have the privilege of being a part of the body of Christ, if we have the wonder of being called child of God, Then, lastly, it means I have work to do. If you're a follower of Christ, anywhere on the spectrum of great faith to little bitty faith, you and I have work to do. You know, I've been doing a ton of work lately. Some of you have seen the treehouse that I built, and... uh, Man, I've been doing a lot of stuff. I got, I, I'm, like, I'm like halfway into about nine projects right now. You have no idea. And every time I feel like I'm gonna get one done, Christina and or the kids are like, hey, you could do this. You did such a good job with your hammer and nails on the treehouse. Maybe pick up the drill and build that wall over there. No problem, I'll get to that because I'm great at building things. Yeah, right. And uh, you know, so I've been building all this stuff. And uh, man, yesterday, I was doing a job in the backyard. Someday we'll, we'll invite folks through the backyard to just witness, like, just, we'll do like a tour. We'll be like, yeah, Pastor Chris, he, he got a free hot tub and that's the, he rebuilt it almost fully functional. And uh, oh, <laughs> Pastor Chris, he built that. Yesterday I was holding up a hot tub with one hand and rebuilding the frame because it was a free hot tub, so it needed a little repair work. And uh, so how many of you know hot tubs don't weigh 50 pounds like I thought they did? <laughs> right right so i'm like today we're up here singing and i'm trying to hold the hymnal and my hand kept doing like this because i'm holding up the hot tub with this arm and i'm pushing on this arm and i had some kids i got strong strong kids that were doing other stuff and uh so i like i finally persuaded one of them get over here and hold that up so i'm holding up the hot tub i'm drilling i'm listen can i say to you If you are a follower of Christ and if God, whether it's from your family heritage, a sense of divine call, or you just stumbled into this congregational church like I did into congregational churches, we're better together. And when you're not here and you're not a part of this place, guess what? That means Pastor Chris is holding up something and somebody else is like using their foot and they're opening the gate. We're better together. Historic congregationalism rests on this idea. Christ alone is the head of his church, right? That means not me, not a bishop, not a pope, nobody. Christ alone is the head of his church. And every local church is a complete representation of the body of Christ. What does that mean? That means God has put every person in here for every task that he has for us to do. But when we're not together, we will not accomplish his work properly. And I'll end up with a cramp in my hand and a sore back. Listen, God bless you today. He is risen. risen No, you didn't say that like you mean it. He is risen. risen Amen.